It's Tuesday, March 31st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio today from Champion Shares Pro, Michael Olson, and from Stock Advisor, Sarah Hav. Happy Tuesday, guys. Hello. Hello. Almost April, and we're going to talk about April and what it means for the stock market. But let's begin with the headlines. One of the big ones today is Charter Communications acquiring Bright House for $10.4 billion. For those of you who don't know, Charter is the fourth largest cable operator in the U.S. by subscribers. Bright House is the sixth. Sarah. Lots of consolidation in the cable industry these days. Are these companies really that afraid of Netflix? Well, that's a very provocative way to put it, Mark. <laughs> well, that's the honest way to put it. But I think what's happening is that uh, we're just seeing a lot of um, a lot of fear, as you're pointing out, from Netflix and from other uh, changes in the market. But also, I think consolidation is just the the key to the cable industry is pricing power, mm-hmm. and so consolidation just heightens each company's pricing power. Makes sense. Uh, Charter will supposedly get some Comcast subscribers if the Comcast Time Warner uh, mega deal goes through. But even then, Comcast Time Warner, that combination, it's going to be the biggest company, cable company by miles, Michael. Isn't there something, isn't there anything else that a Charter or a Bright House or an AT&T, which is acquiring, uh, I think, DirecTV or vice versa, isn't there anything else these guys can do besides just mergers and acquisitions? Well, you know, I mean, I think Sarah makes a very valid point, which is to say that like there is a lot of fear mongering surrounding the prospect of cord cutting, mm. of net neutrality, of the extent to which that will affect the cable company's ability to price and earn high returns on invested capital. In reality, I think that there's sort of a vast misconception surrounding that. These companies shouldn't be thought of as cable TV companies or in the context of net neutrality. The reality is that in the event people go ahead and cancel their cable TV subscriptions in favor of viewing things on the internet, guess who owns that fiber? Comcast, Mm. Time Warner, Charter, Bright House. And so what are they going to do? They're going to increase the price for you. Suppose they go ahead and limit the ability of a Comcast to charge for the fast lane internet. Guess what? Consumers will go ahead and bear that cost. Mm. So then you consider this in the context of the consolidation which is happening. Think of a given large-scale fiber line as you might a highway. A highway which goes to one destination not useful. <laughs> a highway which has multiple destinations, mm-hmm. very useful. Good and imagery. so, <laughs> when you go ahead and you think about what Charter is doing in acquiring Bright House, they are acquiring a solid Southeast regional player, mm. which has a very large concentration in the middle of Florida. Mm-hmm. Now, this is right tangential to some of Charter's Southeast presence. Right. So their ability to go ahead and build out that network, scale that cost, and in turn start to get high utilization on that asset, that's where they really get the returns on invested capital. And so, you know, to that, and then, you know, if these companies are going to be cable TV companies for mm-hmm. at least a few more years, Gives them a little bit more leverage to go ahead and push back on the content providers. So, you know, I really like the strategic merits of this deal. Not least, you also have John Malone, who is not someone you ever want to bet against. <laughs> it's uh, true. It's a <laughs> he smart is man. participating in this deal. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm a fan. Are you guys cord cutters? Do you still have cable, Mike? I have cable. I. Um, I am somewhat beholden in that I continuously threaten to cancel it and mm. 
my girlfriend continuously objects and in turn subjects me to bad TV. Um, <laughs> it's a tough life you live, Sarah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have it because right now it's still you can still get a pretty good package deal to if you're going to have broadband cables not that much more but if that changed I'd cut it in a heartbeat makes sense mm-hmm. all right uh, next up April showers bring May flowers but April is not a very gloomy month for stocks I was a little surprised by this April is a very strong month for the stock market historically uh, Sarah why do you think that is. Well, we've seen it mostly with the Dow Jones. It's uh, I think since 1950 or something like that, it's gone up about two percent in April every year mm-hmm. on average. And um, I think this is several reasons. There's that old adage of "sell in May, go away." Classic. Uh, and so we also see tax returns coming in at the end of the month, and so some people um, turn that money back into the stock market. If April is such a strong month for stocks, what are some companies on your respective radars? Mike, why don't we start with you? All right. So I just want to say one thing. If you're actually thinking about this, stop investing. Like, <laughs> really. Um, I mean, what do you mean, month by month stock movements? They are <laughs> so, so important. So there's this little story about this thing they used to call the January effect. And the January right. effect went like this it went that people would go ahead and sell at the end of December to do their tax loss selling. Then they would buy in January. And so January was always a a wonderfully returning month for mm-hmm. stocks. Guess what? There were some people who realized that. Mm-hmm. And then they started to buy stocks in December. And then the January effect, it went away. And so, to the extent there is actually some merit in this whole sell in May and go away thing, um, there are some people who are probably savvy or hip to this. And they <laughs> are also able to deal in much larger quantities of shares and much more intelligently than we can. The reality here is we are just trying to go ahead and buy businesses whose potential is not recognized by the market. April, May, January, doesn't matter. Way to stomp all over my segment, Mike. Sorry. No, I mean I think well, I mean I think <laughs> But I, I think, think Punxsutawney Phil still gives us a lot of information Absolutely. about the market. I love him. Is there a solar eclipse in July we should buy? Yes. Well, no, I mean, I think it's very relevant because it actually has gotten a lot of press. Mm. Um, So, that being said, what are two companies that I am interested in right now? Um, I guess you could call this the axis of evil play. Uh, Uh (laughs) Let's not do that for our listeners. Game on. mm. So, uh, we have Oaktree Capital. Mm. They are the world's largest distressed debt investor, and they have sort of a predictable curve to their revenue cycle, where what they'll do is they raise these funds and they typically can keep money locked up for anywhere between eight and 10 years if Mm. they choose to. And so, when markets are not so good, they'll raise money. Then they'll go ahead, let these investments season, harvest the proceeds. And because Oaktree is a partnership type structure, Mm -hmm. they will go ahead and pay the proceeds out to their investors. And so, whenever they're on the heels of one of these cycles, their earnings and the dividend it will go down. Hmm. And right now, you've basically had a pretty long and good run in markets. Oaktree has made a, se- a huge sum on their uh, their credit crisis vintage funds. Mm-hmm. They've since rolled off. People are now going ahead and saying, oh, Oaktree is not going to make as much money because all risk assets are very expensive. The reality is there will be a crisis again at some point in time, and I am convinced Oaktree will capitalize on it. It's traded about 12 times my estimate of normalized free cash flow. So that's something that, uh, yeah, it's on my radar screen. Okay. Um, the other one, we'll just go ahead and keep the short and simple, Halliburton. Oil prices 
Bad. Drop the mic. <laughs> Nexus of evil, indeed. Yeah. All right. I like it. Sarah, what about you? Well, I want to go back to our cable discussion. I think that this disruption is making uh, it a good time to buy Discovery Communications, mm. the the company that runs Discovery Channel Ooh. and TLC. Also, John Malone. And yes, it has a uh, John Malone has a huge stake in the company. Um, I think the they've been beaten down because the U.S. market seems pretty mature, pretty well established. But the real opportunity here is international growth, and Discovery is really capitalizing on that with some excellent acquisitions and deals around the world and a great local sales infrastructure. Nice. I like it. All right. Uh, before we go, let's dive into the mailbag and try to answer some listener questions. If you have your own questions, don't hesitate to drop us a line at radio at fool.com. This question comes from Jonathan Smith. Uh, for many years, I've been using index funds when The Motley Fool was an area on AOL. There's a good name drop. Old school fool. Uh, there were no ETFs. Now, I am wondering if there is an advantage to owning an S&P 500 index mutual fund or an ETF mimicking the same index. I think Vanguard offers both. Uh, Jonathan Smith, listener number 1,000,001. That seems high, but okay, let's go with it. Uh, what are you guys thinking? Uh, Michael, ETFs or mutual funds? What do you got? Um, I mean, I think in the general sense, ETFs make a lot of sense, all sequel, just because the transaction costs on ETFs substantially the same as a given index fund. Mm-hmm. You want to go ahead and look into the nuance of this and in terms of how they do their portfolio construction. Morningstar, I'm sorry, I realize we shouldn't be talking about them, but Morningstar <laughs> does a great job of talking about these things. Um, one thing you want to look at is if you are invested in index funds. I'm pretty sure Vanguard does not do that, but I'm not 100% certain because I'm not invested in index funds. Mm. Some funds will hit you with a hefty little redemption fee if you go ahead and pull your money out of them. Hmm. Now, that can scald you pretty nasty. So, uh, <laughs> you want to be aware of that. But all is equal, I'm a big fan of ETFs as a way to go ahead and pursue an index-based investing strategy. I don't want to be scalded pretty nasty. Sarah, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what about you? What have you got? The highway to nowhere, <laughs> Halliburton, the imagery. axis of evil. Great imagery. Um, so, I actually do have to agree with Mike that if you're going to do any kind of active investing, ETFs are the way to go. If you're more of a set it and forget it, you might just find the ease of index funds to be easier for you, right. uh, and you won't have to worry about any kind of dividend reinvesting. So it kind of depends on your temperament and your goals. I think even as a passive investor, you can use you can employ ETFs effectively, just That's because true. you know. I mean, S and P five hundred index mm-hmm. ETF. If it has lower transaction costs, why would you not go with the ETF? Right. All right. Mm-hmm. Teach their own. All right. Sarah Hoff, Mike Olson, guys, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Cheers. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.